as human beings, we're unconnected, we're disconnected from one another, loneliness. We're disconnected from reality. And as such, we're making sense of things that are disconnected from reality. Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next-level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. On this episode, we learn from Minter Dial. Minter is a professional speaker on leadership and transformation and the award-winning author of four books, most recently, Artificial Empathy, recently released in its second edition. He hosts the Minter Dialogue podcast and is author of the featured substack, Dialogos, fostering more meaningful conversations. He previously held executive uh, roles in a number of organizations, including as CEO of Redken Worldwide. You can find more on his work at minterdial.com and where you can point to his podcast and his books. You can go to Amazon or any other bookstores to find his work. So in this episode, we talk about the themes of his book, Artificial Empathy, including how we can build organizational empathy, how we can augment ourselves with AI, building our own empathy with curiosity and humility, and how we can connect to reality in a world in which we are increasingly disconnected. So please stay tuned for a wonderful conversation with Minter. Minter, it's a delight to be talking to you. Ross, always fun to chat with you. I've really enjoyed following your work, reading about you, having you on my podcast, and uh, thanks for having me on. So you work with leaders in all guises uh, for many years now, and leadership, I suppose, yeah, encompasses cognition. It's a way of making sense of the world in order to be able to act effectively in it. So I know it's a very big topic, but what are some of the ways in which we can, as leaders, enhance our cognition or to help leaders to enhance their cognition, the breadth and the scope of their ability to to think and act? Well, Ross, it's a really interesting way to, to go into this topic by, if I reference empathy, because there are two parts to empathy, which is a a strong or very important skill that I think leaders of tomorrow need to have today and tomorrow. And and typically we divide empathy into two different types. One is cognitive and the other is affective or emotional. And I think to be a little bit out of left field, one of the things that leaders to improve their cognition could do would be to have better self-awareness, and higher emotional quotient. 
In other words, better understanding of their emotions, a better acceptance of them, and eventually a better showing of them. So that's that's where I'd like to start. So let's let's dig into the theme of empathy. What, so how do you define that? Let's bring this uh, this word, this idea of empathy, to life. Well, so essentially, the the so there. Let's say that many different schools of thought as to what is empathy, but broadly speaking, it's about being in someone else's shoes. More specifically, it's about understanding someone else's feelings, thoughts, and experiences. So if you break that down, that means that I can understand what you're thinking. I can understand what you're feeling. I can understand your context experiences. Then there's a second piece of it, which is the effective empathy, which is actually I feel your feelings which takes it to another level. So if if you're sad, I feel sad. I don't feel sad for you, which is sympathy. I feel sad I feel your sadness. And and in in the way I approach empathy, it feels well, I believe it's much more reasonable to think that you can learn cognitive empathy and much harder to imagine learning or improving your affective empathy. Because if you don't feel stuff, I can't make you do it. On the other hand, cognitive understanding, open questions, thoughtfulness, observation, taking the time, these are things you can control, if you will, if you wish. So the, the, a, lot, a lot of this happens in the, in the creating a prosperous workplace. But just to push to an edge case, if you have to lay off a bunch of people, then does that mean you have to cut off your empathy? Or what is the, how, because if you're feeling their pain of many people, that's, that's a massive burden. Maybe you should be feeling that burden, but how, how do one manage you know, when there's, you know, in this kind of example, when there's uh, there's no other path for the, you know, for an organization to survive, to be able to, uh, you know, cause that kind of pain. Well, whether or not it's the only thing, it is the thing you've decided. And reality is that empathy isn't about being nice, which is the miss one of the big misconceptions people have. So empathy is really about understanding someone else's thoughts, feelings, and experience. So I'm going to get back to the emotional side of it in a moment, but let's say that I have to give deliver to you, Ross, some bad news. For example, I might have to cut your salary, or maybe I have to demote you, or you know, move you to a place I'd rather you go rather than stay with me. If I understand your context and the impact it will have on you, not just at work, but maybe in society with your family, then I might be more suitably arranging in the way I express it. Hey, Ross, I know you're really going to, uh, this is going to be hard. So please, you have a moment here, take a seat. This is going to be some bad news for you. And I know it's going to be bad news because of your situation. And by trying to do that, by showing that you're really considerate 
about the situation. It doesn't obviously take away the pain of the final mandate, which is I'm firing you. However, what I'm going to do is because I know your situation, I'm also going to think about having thought about that, what impact it's going to have on you. So considering your situation, Ross, and this bad news that I have to give you, here's what I'm going to suggest, or here's how we can position it. For example, with regard to your family, you might have, you know, we'll keep your title for another six months while you're searching, or I don't know. There are different ways to land the news in a way if you can be considerate about the person's situation. I just want to get back to the affective side because surely feeling everybody's pain is difficult. And there is actually a pathology called being an empath where you are constantly totally sensitive to everyone's feelings all the time. And that is hugely draining. It's, it's a real problem. It's, I mean, it can make you unable to make any decisions or, or act because you're so fretful about, you know, turning someone and, you know, making someone unhappy. That said, in, in business, we, we tend to make a separation between sort of professional status and this other area, which is personal, which includes the emotional status. And um, in today's world, there is much evidence to show that a lot of people in human resources are, are suffering empathy burnout. And this comes from two things. One is hugely difficult economic situation, business environment, except for a few lucky ones, but on balance, a lot of uncertainty, whether it's war, economics, global climate, whatever, it makes everyone nervous and people are having difficulties and, and strapping down. So bad, a bad news environment, fear factors, and bosses are saying, well, you know, better batten down the hatches. And the people who are the intermediary generally relaying the information from the executive suite into the employee workforce, for example, letting go of people, are the HR team. And and they uh, are also having to deal with, for example, the movement from or not whether to have flexible work hours, work from home, and how all that's supposed to happen. And they're trying to do that with humanity, all the while being whipped and, and pressurized because performance is difficult and the out, outlook is uncertain. So the one I want to get soon to the uh the themes of your book artificial empathy and some of the ways and technology plays a part but but first in a in the short time we have in a in a podcast conversation how how is it that people leaders anybody can move to being have a more functional empathy you know empathy is enormously valuable for all sorts of reasons you know, you can't sell anybody, anything to anybody unless you really understand the situations. You can't engage. You can't, uh, you know, motivate. So these are very powerful uh, capabilities, and yeah, you know, very pragmatic capabilities, but also ones which give us a richer life. So, are there any ways which we can develop our empathy? There most certainly are. I, I would say that, you know, if someone's listening to this and they're kind of nodding their head already, oh, it's like Ross said, it's really great for business. It's helping management. It's going to allow you to sell. It's going to be great for customer interactions and so on. Then you've kind of already, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. But the challenge is, the reality is, 
a lot of businesses struggle to have, uh, let's call it an organizational empathy. And, and part of that is, let's say, the culture, but also the people in the C-suite. Are they modeling the behavior? So wherever you sit in the organization, is your boss, is the executive team modeling empathy? Or are they struggling to deal with the pressures? Because there are two things that kill empathy in organizations. And the first is stress related to performance issues in, in large part. And lack of time, because I'm running from meeting to meeting. I don't have time to listen to you. Park that for another time. And ultimately, never allowing for that time to happen. So if you are really interested in becoming empathic, I'll get to the concrete methods in a moment. But first of all, understand why you want to be empathic, because empathy is just a tool. And it can be used for good and bad purposes. Ask a sociopath. That's the primary tool. What, why do you want to become more empathic? And how truly aware are you of your and your organization's empathic levels? Because there are some that say, oh, well, I'm already empathic. But they will, and, and, and in studies I've done year after year, between 72 and 80% of individuals will describe themselves as being above average in their level of empathy. Problem. So this issue of self-awareness is, is genuinely important, especially in the higher ranks. I mean, one of the key qualities of being empathic is being curious. One of the key elements of being curious is having the humility to absolutely wish to understand or learn from somebody else. Because if I kind of know it already, then I'm going to start cutting you off. I'm not going to listen. I'm going to be thinking about what I'm going to say next. And that doesn't allow the other person to feel heard. So having that self-awareness is really important. And then understanding genuinely where you are as an organization. And finally, just to come up with, Ross, the, the things that can help you generate or be more empathic. Well, Assuming you've got the self-awareness, uh, one lovely idea is to start reading much more fiction. I don't know about you, Ross, you and I write nonfiction for the most, right? But fiction, when it's well-written with great dialogues and development of personalities and characters, allows you somehow to get into the minds of other people, people that are not like you. For example, it can be a woman. It could be someone who of another race or another religion or another country. And, and if it's well-written, then you allows you the sort of nuanced, complex understanding of how other people are. And that's one very lovely and easy thing to do. There are, of course, many others. I've always been an inveterate reader of fiction, so I've, there are times when I've not read as much fiction, but I'm still reading as much fiction as fiction these days, as nonfiction. It's, uh, you know, it's a delight in its own right. You know, we are, we are part of the human race, and that's, uh, you know, amazing writers pull that to bring that... Um, yeah, make us see things, you know, tug on our heartstrings in, uh, in wonderful ways. Stories. Yes. One of the things I've been reading most recently, um, I've read a couple of dystopian novels, and I think they also have their place all the more so in today's world, 
where there seems to be this huge divide. And in that divide, I kind of see the sort of the do-good, positive intention version of the world. And then the other side, highly fearful, highly uh, compartmentalized and 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 worried about the future, maybe more tribal, if you will, in thought. thought. And if you look at the way Uh, the book that I really encourage everyone to take a look at, which is about to hit its 100th anniversary in 2024, is uh, Yevgeny Zemyatin's We, which was written in 1924, first published in English and finally came out in Russian, something like in the 80s. But it is a tremendously interesting read because it, it fundamentally looks at this idea of who are we? What is we? When we belong, we belong to what? Where is the place of the I? Are we allowed to have I? Is I good? Is ego appropriate? And then you have the narcissism on the other side. And so it's a really interesting uh, discussion. And, and I think that part of the biggest paradoxes that we have to resolve or at least live with in business and in life is learning this paradox between the need to feel different and yet belong. No, that's that's fascinating. It's... Um... This you know echoes a lot of my own uh, I suppose quest over life you know the role of ego in a and how do we create well together, but to your point around the value of dystopian fiction, uh, Margaret Atwood uh, basically explicitly says that she writes dystopian novels to help us avoid those uh, the future she describes, and uh, yeah you know, I think she's already has played a role in that to be people to recognize things that are happening uh, which uh, echo some of her themes which have led to uh, people being able to express themselves more clearly about what it is they don't want. It brings up the notion, Ross, of history. Margaret Atwood being rather well endowed in, in history. Um, obviously, I, I've had her nephew, Dan Snow, on my show a couple of times. And um, the thing is, we, we've kind of lost the plot as far as studying history is concerned. And if you don't study history, well, you know, how are you going to avoid the repeat repetition? And and frankly, what I've been talking to professors of history, universities here in England, as well as in the United States, and uh, their their commentary is, is, is disheartening. We no longer wish to study history as facts and events that happen in a context. We only want to criticize it depending on today's evaluation, our mores of today, which is not going to give us a good understanding of what happened. Yeah, no, I think a very, very apt turn of phrase, uh, lost the plot, as in uh, that is the, that's the plot that we have, uh, which we've uh, lived through as a human race, which can potentially uh, inform uh, our path forward. Absolutely. Storytelling. Well, I mean, I think storytelling has a great value. Very quick break to point you to AmplifyingCognition.com. You'll find a stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. Now back to the show. So I'd like to switch on to the themes of um, artificial empathy. Your your recent book, I think you've revised as uh, the rise of generative AI, where 
amongst other points that you know, machines can express or engage us with uh, emotion to uh, evoke empathy, to express empathy in various guises. So in a world where artificial intelligence, AIs can be empathic or to evoke empathy in us, you know, what, what are the things which we need to be thinking about the most? Right. So um, I love your group about humanity and AI, by the way, Ross. I'm enjoying the, just the beginnings of that. So I, th I suppose that the, the first thought is how you think of AI will inform how you use it. In other words, are you worried shitless about everything? In which case you're going to be operating from a, a place of fear. Uh, or you have a positive bent, and then are you a little bit sort of idealistic about what its potentials are and, and putting your head in the sand as to what could go wrong? So it's important to have that as a, a beginning piece. My approach would be to think about what are you, what is strategically important for you in your business, and then how can AI supplement, augment you and your human intelligence? That's the general piece. And it's amazing how many things are out there. So then you have to think about your ethical framework, how you want to bring that in in a way that's appropriate. Are you going to be kind of too goody two-shoes about it? As in, expect it to have a higher standard of operation than we as human beings are? Or are you going to have a little bit more realistic understanding of what you're trying to achieve? Are you prepared to experiment, fail, test, try again? because it's going to need a lot of that with humility, because by the way, you know, life is tricky and, and move along. And then basically consider that a lot of employees are probably going to be worried about the impact of AI. So positioning it in a way that they are willing to, and hopefully won't, sabotage, they're willing to work with it and work with you, think of it as a skill acquisition and and do it. So there, there are several organizations that are considering how to use empathically, let's say, formatted, coded artificial intelligence to help certain functions in business concretely, such as marketing communications or CRM, customer service. But it doesn't mean removing the human being. It's trying to augment, facilitate, take out some of the nutty, silly tasks and make them better and eventually more effective by being sometimes graded for being more empathic in the way that they're approaching their communications. So always, you know, my, my framing around this is humans plus AI, as in how can humans and AI be better? How can, you know, essentially AI amplify humans and humanity? So looking in a customer service context, I mean, of course, we can just have a human interacting with the customer, we can have AI interacting with the customer, or we can have the AI supporting the human well, either way, I suppose some combination of them. So firstly, you know, a lot of now customer services done is automated. And I'd like to sort of just to address that idea of to what degree should the AI express empathy? You know, if and I suppose whether that's really felt or not, and to how the humans and AI together can be more effective in, in expressing or you know, living uh, empathy 
I kind of hear this regularly. This is like a consultant's answer, but it depends. I mean, for example, if you're at a B2B or B2C and how B2C are you? Are you millions and millions of people? And obviously the the need for some kind of scalable response system becomes all the more evident. When it... Um, what are you what are you trying to achieve how how real are you as human beings and then how can you create a copacetic or consistent with your culture type of ai service reality is we are very far from having empathic ai what we're getting better at is trying to tag or identify more empathic responses there's a very important distinction that's worthwhile bringing up, which is within empathy, there is the giver of empathy, the one who's being empathic, and then there's the one who's receiving it. And I like to make this distinction because, in essence, sometimes someone can be the giver, be empathic, but the other person doesn't feel it. And that's not necessarily bad. It, it might be just that the other person is there to be empathic. And maybe, for example, I'm a product manager thinking of a new product for Mr. Dawson type of person. Well, what would Mr. Dawson really like? Well, I think he would really like this and this and that. And that would fit into his day. It would really be useful for him. And, and then I'd if it's a pen, he'd like to have a nice click when it closes, because that's a satisfaction, there's, there's little user experience elements to it. But when you use, let's say I'm designing a pen, you don't know that I was being empathic. You're not going to say, oh, well, Minter, that pen designer was really empathic with me. You might say, oh, this is a freaking great pen. But you're not going to associate it with the quality of empathy. That's in sort of an example of a case. But at other times... You might try to be empathic, but the other person doesn't feel it. And maybe that person is in a, is in a deeper, worse space. And, and so this notion of giving and receiving depends what you're trying to measure. And in the case of customer services, which you, which you brought it first, when you are responding to somebody, and the question here is how much data do you have on your customer base? So that what, how much of the work that you're requiring your customer service to do can be improved? For example, a call comes in. Oh, I can identify the call. That's this customer. Let's profile this customer. This customer likes to be treated really quickly. Just short sentences, wants effectiveness, don't do any nice to how you're doing, sir. Go straight to the core and answer the question. All right, that's great. That, that gives me... I'm informed as to how I should operate with this customer. Customer comes in is angry. Oh, I didn't expect that. Software can help me uh, mentor, relax. Because this is how you're going to deal with this. Here are four options of how you can reply to this. The first one is highly empathic, but not very good for business. The second one is less empathic and a little better for business and so on. So you could have different measurements. So you're not necessarily going to always take the most empathic, depending on the culture and what your objectives are. And this, then you have these four answers. They're all pre-typed. You as the customer service agent have the agency, keyword, 
to choose which of the four you think is best based on the criteria and valuations that you as an organization want to set up. And this is something concretely that people are doing at Digital Genius, which is one organization that does that. And, and by helping the agent to be more informed about the customer incoming, giving some tips as to how to be a little bit more empathic, just attitudinally, because the other person's spitting fire at you, it's hard to be empathic at that moment necessarily. And then come up with a, a pre-type so I don't have to worry about typos and mistakes. So pushing a bit further, one of the things which is fascinating is the degree of AI to engage us emotionally. And so we have Replica and you know some of the characters in character.ai and uh, many others. You know, I've I've forgotten the name of it. There's a Chinese service which has uh, literally hundreds of millions of uh, virtual boyfriends or girlfriends on it. And so these are, you know, in a way that goes beyond empathy. Perhaps one of the things that makes us be emotionally engaged is the other person is empathic, probably a very important part of it. But it is... Yeah, essentially, this is one of the frontiers of, you know, which we need to explore and discover, as in what happens when we become emotionally engaged, and we will, you know, people are already falling in love with AI, you know, chatbots and various guises, and that will certainly continue. So where are we? And where, what are the, where do we, what are the opportunities, I suppose, and the, the challenges? of these deeply emotionally engaging uh, AI conversationalists? Well, we are moving along. And I think uh, in my sort of quip would be to say that we're in a very lonely society and people are very willing and, and desirous of having emotions because, heck, we're not just lonely. We're, we are sad. The levels of anxiety and depression in the world are huge. And so people are, are very quick to run into no one has the time to hear anybody else. It's all about me. And on top of that, not only is it all about me, but it's all about what I feel. Forget the facts. And, and my feelings are the truth. And my truth is better and trumps yours. So I think that's sort of a, a level playing field. But um, when it comes to organizing this thought, this is I have, I have a three-part version. One is, what are you trying to achieve? What is your ambition? What is your intention? The second is, what is your ethical framework that supports that? And the third, which is important, which is, what is your business model? And you need to sort of combine those three things as you look at what you're trying to do with AI, whatever business you're doing. Because you can make, perhaps, your AI better than you as an organization is. You can make it perhaps, maybe, let's say, more empathic than you as an organization is, because there's such a thing as organizational empathy. But is that going to make it for a better experience overall for your customer? Or maybe you're just looking to make a quick dime and sell the company in 18 months, in which case the ethical framework is usually thrown out the window. So it, this takes into consideration what is your intention and what is your business model so I, th I look at those three things as being really important when you look at AI. So, so to, to round out here on this idea of artificial empathy, where machines 
in many cases, will be effectively better at expressing empathy than many humans. Or at least that's, that's I, th I think, a, a premise I would make. So w where does this go? I mean, we're in broader society in terms of all of us and how we engage with that. What, what are some top of mind thoughts on what's coming and, and how we should be thinking about this world where we do literally have artificial empathy in a very real way, uh, as well as you know, human empathy? Well, here's where I'm going to go with this, Ross. I think there's a lot of artifice in general. Not just AI or artificial empathy. I feel as a society, we, we tend to live through avatars. I use the word avatar as a sort of a metaphor for an alternative reality. And we generally believe that my reality is the right reality and will promote everything to make me better and make me look good. And in this idea of virtue signaling and, and looking good, I feel we've lost the plot again as to what is reality. And the things we're looking at, in certain cases, it's all about making a quick dime, making a lot of money, flipping the business to some VCs or whatever. But Worse than that, as a society, we, we're, we're so grotesquely egotistical that we think we deserve to live forever. That we are the generation, the, that the first generation deserves to have immortality. I mean, there, there are people in the transhumanist department who are thinking this. They've completely detached themselves from reality, which are that we are mortal highly fallible, imperfect beings. We, the, 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 the beauty of life is dealing with challenges, not pretending that it's perfect. And, and so as human beings, we've lost, we're unconnected, we're disconnected from one another, loneliness, we're disconnected from reality, and, and, and as such, we're making sense of things that are disconnected from reality. Have you ever heard of apophenia? You know, this is a beautiful word, which means make, making sense of things that actually don't have any rational sense underneath it. You, you invent sense out of the stars. Oh, I see the stars. And that must mean that tomorrow I'm going to have make money. <laughs> All right. And, and uh, we, we're, we're in a world where we, we lack true sense. Sense being this idea of rationality as well. We're in this high feeling mode, highly detached from reality, and desperate for sense and connection, for true sense. And we're so desperate that we're prepared to go for anything to have meaning. So I would like us to focus on being a little bit more real, being a little bit more self-aware and not being so self-indulgent and thinking more about community and thinking about actually, what do we mean by we? Not in a, a naughty world where everybody is beautiful and everybody deserves to belong, because I think that's a beautifully, let's say, idealistic idea that has no base of reality. So we have to learn how to find our limits, to say that good intentions lead to bad outcomes, 
and be a little bit more realistic about the way we approach things, including, of course, the way we encode AI. Yes. Yeah, there's... uh... With the nature of society is changing rapidly, and that's uh, of our, yeah, it's some fundamentals to humanity. Many humans with, uh, as you say, human fallibilities uh, brought together. Now we're amplifying that in many ways with our uh, the technologies we've created. So it does come, but it, in which in a way it comes back to who it is we are in this world. So, Minter, what, what's uh, the best places for people to find you and your uh, work? Well, generally speaking, it's on a paddle tennis court because I'm a nut for paddle tennis. <laughs> but if that's not the way you work, um, I also uh, like to write. I, I get up pretty much every morning and write about a thousand words a day. And uh, most of my writings, my sort of hub is minterdial.com. Of course, there's that little company over in Amazon that carries a few of my books. I've just released a white paper called Making Empathy Count, which looks at this notion of how do you evaluate and measure empathy. And that's also available on Amazon. And otherwise, I'm out there on social media still drumming and but also listening. And I think that's, uh, if you talk about mental models, spend more time listening than ranting. I mean, I've been ranting on this podcast with you, Ross. Thank you for listening and indulging me. But I think we should spend a whole lot more time listening with curiosity, with genuine humility, and, and not thinking about necessarily how I'm going to make the world better, but at least put effort into making your world a little part of the world a little better. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today, Minta. It's been a pleasure over a glass of scotch in London, but, you know, thank you very much for having me on, Ross. Thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com, where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.